Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Stock Talk. This is a little podcast that I like to put together where I like to talk about all things investing, talk about what's going on in the market, sharing with you some of my observations in the market, and also sharing with you some different perspectives and observations from other people um, that are looking at the stock market, really with the whole goal of it to just give you some interesting perspectives that are going to allow you to help you frame your investment decisions a little bit, bit a little bit, bit better. Uh, my name is Amin Reina, and wow, and uh, I'm an investment coach and founder of Sage Investors. And what I do as an investment coach is I try to help people who really want to become more financially independent. The problem, though, with getting to financial independence is when you're looking at things from an investing perspective is a lot of people get really frustrated, uh, intimidated, and confused by this whole investing concept. They either don't know where to start if they just want to get into investing, or if they've been investing for a long period of time, they just aren't making any traction and progress in their portfolio. So what I do as an investment coach is I teach people, I, I engage with them on how to make more educated and ultimately more successful investment decisions so that they can achieve a certain level of financial freedom in their lives and, and achieve it with confidence. So this is episode 104 and today I want to talk a little bit about stock analysts, stock market analysts. Um, these are the people that you, if you watch CNBC or Bloomberg or BNN, they are on there all the time talking about, uh, you know, here's stuff about buy recommendations, sell recommendations, they're taking phone calls on the air um, <clears throat> about, uh, you know, buy this, sell this, we like this company because of this, we hate this company because of that. And uh, they have quite a lot of weight and have been given a lot of weight and given a lot of influence a bit in the market because some of their recommendations um, tend to have an ability to, at least in the short term, to influence stock prices. So um, what I want to talk about really is, you know, this whole concept of analysts and really do we need to pay attention to them? How good are they? Are they really that good? And what kind of value can we get as investors from listening to and reading uh, analyst reports? So just to give you a little bit of background, uh, before I became, before I morphed my, my, my business into, uh, you know, a, a coaching and teaching um, business where I teach people to invest and I coach people to make better investment decisions, um, I was originally uh, started, my, started my consulting firm to be as, as an investment analyst. So I spent a lot of time uh, analyzing companies, analyzing stocks, and I incorporated a specific model uh, that I use to help measure uh, the financial performance of companies, which I talk about is uh, economic profit. And for those of you who are taking my courses and who have worked with me, you know I use that term a lot because to me I found economic profit, or some people call it economic value added to be an interesting or more accurate way to measure the financial performance of a company. So way back in the day, this was like in the mid to late 90s after I graduated from university with my business degree. Um, you know, I got to work on, on, on Bay Street and I wanted to get into investing, but I just couldn't find any really credible, independent, unbiased information about companies. Um, most of the information was very biased and was actually, to me, full of conflicts. There were lots of conflicts of interest. At the time, the big things, the big issues, well, to me, that what were the big issues with analyst reports and this whole financial analyst, uh, you know, 
uh, obsession was was there's a few things. One of them was um, the types of analysts that were out there. There you would hear terms. You commonly hear terms called sell side analysts and buy side analysts. Um, sell side analysts that were out there are people that work for investment banks and kind of work on underwriting. Um, companies that are looking to go public, looking to issue stock, raise money by issuing stock. And uh, a lot of times what these sell-side analysts do is they generate a lot of analyst reports. And a lot of these analyst reports were very um, flattering, very positive. Um, and to me, at the end of the day, it was more about marketing copy than really anal uh, you know, independent, thoughtful, uh, critical analysis of companies. And uh, a lot of times the investment banks would use this, uh, there's their analysts to, to help in generating underwriting fees. And that was very, very prevalent in, in, the, in the mid 1990s. Um, what it did also was it fostered an environment where there was like basically every stock had a buy recommendation on it. And I was just pulling off something that I, I, I saw recently. Um, back in 1999, uh, if you just took Merrill Lynch, they had at that one point in 1999 uh, 940 buy recommendations and only seven sell recommendations. Um, and that was just Merrill Lynch. You could literally pick any major uh, investment company out there at the time, both on Bay Street and on Wall Street, and that was the mentality. Basically, everything was, every stock was, was, was a buy. And it, and it doesn't make sense. And it just never made any sense. It never made any sense to me. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why that was. Um, part of it is marketing, and part of it was a fear um, that some of these uh, these analysts didn't want to piss off their the, the companies because they feared if they wrote negatively about a company, if um, even if the company was doing not very well, not performing well, they would still post you know positive reviews because they just didn't want to piss them off and get cut off from the company and get cut off from the access of management. See, back then it was so easy for an analyst to just pick up a phone and call a company's senior management, somebody in the senior manager, and just say, hey, hey, what's going on with your business? How are you doing? What's the next quarter looking like? What's your estimates are? And there was that very open kind of... Um, arm's length kind of relationships. There was a lot of relationship building when the whole point of it being an analyst was to be objective um, and critical when there was critical elements that needed to be defined. But that element, that environment back then was just never there. And, and a lot of people, and I really believe that a lot of reasons why we had the dot-com explosion in, 19, in, the, in the 2000, early 2000, and why we had meltdowns like Enron and Nortel was that the analyst community just wasn't being critical enough. They were just too busy trying to generate fees and they were too busy to um, just, they just didn't want to rock the boat. And so you had companies like Enron and Nortel, which were totally manipulating their earnings, were totally using aggressive accounting uh, treatments to just jack up their earnings. Um, you had dot-com companies that were had no revenues and were totally unprofitable, yet they were getting buy recommendations by analysts at the time, and this fed that bubble, that major asset bubble that we had in the 1990s. And during that time, the, regula the regulators, you know, the SEC, the OSC up here in Canada, you know, basically did nothing. And the whole, you know, people like Arthur Levitt, who was the head of the SEC, 
um, who I think is one of the most hypocritical people I've ever heard of, um, you know, goes out there saying, oh, there's no big deal, there's nothing to worry about, there's no conflict. And then when after everything happens, he goes, well, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, there should be, there are some problems there. Um, he was the leader of the SEC while this was all, all going on, and he did absolutely nothing about it. And the reason why I get upset about it is because at the end of the day, who gets hurt by all this? Um, it's people like you and me. It's the average investor who, again, we, we depend on, the, on, on these um, critical um, institutions to help us give us some guidance, to give us some, you know, to break down some of the, the fact versus the fiction. And the fact of the matter is uh, the analysts during that time were just not doing that job. And uh, so, you know, we had the dot-com explosion and everything like that. And, you know, there was a lot of regulations that came up after that in terms of being more transparent. Analysts had to disclose any conflicts of interest, whether they actually own shares or sold shares. You see a lot of those, you know, um, conflict, uh, trend, you know, disclosure statements that you see on TV when an analyst is talking about a stock. Um, so there's things that happened after the, you know, in the early 2000s that were supposed to address this. And so the question, you know, I asked, it's, you know, we're in 2000, it's like 20, almost 20 years ago, is have, has the analyst kind of profession and has this whole Bay Street, Wall Street analyst, you know, um, community, you know, have they, have they changed? Have they, are they, have they actually, has it become better? Or has, do the same behaviors that we were seeing in the 90s, um, are they still in play? And it's important to know that because a lot of people watch CNBC, watch these, read media reports, read analyst reports, you know, take advice from their broker, their, their financial advisor, and a lot of those decisions are being made based on analyst reports. So are we seeing more critical, more objective type of analysis being done by, by the analyst community out there. And so that's kind of really what I wanted to take a look at today. I saw an interesting article in the Globe and Mail that kind of threw some numbers out there. And uh, in a nutshell, you know, has anything changed since, since the dot-com time, the dot-com period? And the answer is, is no, nothing has changed. And, uh, and it's, I'm going to say if you throw some numbers at you, some stats at you that have shown that really not a hell of a lot has changed. Uh, specifically in Canada, if you looked at um, all, this, all the analyst recommendations um, just recently over the past year or so, um, of which there's been about 5,500 recommendations, there's been 3.9% of them have sell recommendations. So that's two, only 216 stocks out there, or 216 recommendations out there have been uh, to sell out of 5,500 uh, recommendations that, were ha that have been generated, which is pathetic. It's just horrible. Um, here's some more stuff. If you look at all the stocks on the, TS, uh, the S and P TSX composite, there is not at this very moment, as I speak, there is not one single stock on that index that has a median sell rating. If you took the portfolio of, let's just say you built a portfolio of all the top-rated um, stocks that had high, high, high analyst ratings, if you looked at the returns of that portfolio, they weren't any better than just taking uh, the long-term average of a broad market index. So if you wonder why um, low-cost vanilla ETFs that invest in broad market indexes are much more popular, are really popular right now versus actively managed 
um, traditional actively managed portfolios, this is the big reason because they're just does. When you look at the data, it just doesn't seem like uh, the analyst community, the analyst type uh, insights and perspectives don't really add much value or don't generate any more significant return than just, hey, holding a whole basket of, of stocks and holding it at for a long period of time. The one thing that was interesting, um, a stat, was that if you took a portfolio of the lowest rated stocks, they tended to do pretty bad. So in a way, you could kind of, if, if you're an analyst trying to you know, do a value proposition of why people should listen to you, um, it's that when they do find stocks that are not good, those rare 3% of them, um, they do tend to do pretty badly. So, and so that's something, something to be interesting to, to think about it. So, you know, just based on this little snapshot here, and I think, I think we can pull the same numbers out of the US market and get pretty much the same kind of breakdown. Um, the question is, like, for, for you and me as investors, why do we bother listening when we see somebody on CNBC, see an analyst on CNBC, why do we, why do we bother listening to them? Like, why should we care? Because clearly, there's politics behind a lot of the decision making that they're making. There's still those same conflicts that I talked about in the early 90s, in the mid 90s. Those seem to be still in effect. Um, they just don't seem to do, these aren't like, and the thing is, these aren't idiots. These are, these are smart people who have learned a lot about uh, stock analysis. They know their stuff, but for whatever reason, and as I said, the politics has a great factor in doing it and uh, driving this. It doesn't translate into you know meaningful uh, financial performance, um, and I think a lot of it is. But we still listen to them. So why do we continue to listen to them? Because I think um, it comes down to our, some of our behaviors. Um, one of our behaviors or biases that we always all of us kind of fall into is this whole expert bias. We gravitate to people um, who are going to give us uh, certainty in an uncertain uh, world. And analysts, because they're following companies and 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 have that training and formal training behind it we gravitate them because we feel or we look and say hey you know what these guys have they know their stuff they're studying this stuff they've learned how to analyze companies and how to evaluate companies so what they're saying has to make some sense so that's one element this whole expert bias but then there's also this groupthink mentality which is very prevalent um, in the analyst when you're reading analyst reports because hey you know what if only three percent or seven percent of uh, companies being analyzed have sell recommendations. Clearly, there's a lot of groupthink going on here, a lot of homogeneity thinking, a real lack of critical thinking, or a willingness to be more critical when they're in, uh, analyzing companies. So there's a groupthink mentality too here um, that we we gravitate to. And because, as I say, as humans, as people, we want to gravitate to people who are associated with people um, and institutions that you know are going to validate a lot of things that we think. So when we look at analysts and their assessments and, and, and uh, evaluations, we will gravitate to them. Now, as I said, I'm not trying to slam, I don't want to slam analysts. I'm not trying to slam analysts because, as I said, these are smart people. These aren't idiots um, who, who have no clue about investing. Or have no clue about understanding what businesses are and evaluating businesses because they do provide to me the one value that I would consider in terms of listening to an analyst or reading an analyst report is they do bring really good uh, concrete um, assessments of what's going on in the business, what are the challenges of the business, the competitive nature of the business. Um, 
uh, the companies, uh, the relationship between a company and other companies, their competitor of nature of business. They provide a really good snapshot and overview of those elements. So that's worth knowing, especially if you're interested in investing in a stock they, and you don't know anything about it. It's a good way to kind of quickly get up to speed on what's going on with the company and also know what some of the challenges are with the company. Um, if I were to tell people, like, you know, and I, when, I, when I do work with people and, and try to consume information, I tell people, like, when you're listening to analysts, as I said, 99, 95% of the analysts are, have buy recommendations, but there's 5% out there that are willing to, you know, don't care about the, uh, you know, the, the consequences of being objective and giving a bad, you know, rating. They're the ones that I would kind of listen to. So if you hear some, an analyst popping a, a sell recommendation on something, you know what, I'd probably pick up that report and I'd want to read that report because they're going to give me a different perspective maybe than what I've been thinking about the company and they're going to give probably a more objective viewpoint of the company. It may not pan out, but again, it's another, one of the things we need to have as investors when we're making decisions is perspectives. We can't just always look at the company as everything is rosy. You've got to also ask hard questions in terms of, okay, what's what are the challenges? What are the clouds? What are the risks associated with the business? And a lot of times the ones that are going to have the sell ratings are going to have a more critical viewpoint. And some of it you might agree with, some of it you might not. You might think it's fluff, but it's important to have that perspective and have another viewpoint because that's just going to frame your investment decision uh, a heck of a lot better. So um, as I said, I don't disparage analysts. I think they're bright, intelligent people. I think the ones that I would kind of pay more attention to are the ones that have, in terms of, are, are more critical, are more objective, and, and ultimately you can find those ones by their sell ratings. If they're putting sell ratings on stocks, they're going to be critical, and they really don't care what the ramifications are of it. So analyst reports and listening to analysts, I think, are a good thing because they provide you with the context of what the business is doing. The thing I part I would probably let, rely less on with analysts is the predictive nature of what a stock is going to do. What um, you know when they say a stock is you know we we price the stock at twenty dollars within eighteen months. Well, you don't know that, and it's really hard to predict that. And so when you get into the predictive forecasting nature of their reports and their analysis, that's the part I would kind of totally avoid. Um, and focus on other things. And at the end of the day, you're buying the stock, so you take it into account, and at the end of the day, you put your framework and your decision-making on top of it, and chances are you're probably gonna make a better decision because you're not gonna be dealing with the politics of, of that decision that that analyst has undertaken. So, something I, wanna share, I wanted to share with you, I'd love to hear your insights on it. Um, if you have any questions about this, um, comments, uh, maybe you just totally agree with me. If you're an analyst out there and you totally disagree with everything I said, feel free to give me a shout. Um, you can hit me through my Facebook page, um, Sage Investors. You can leave a comment on there. I'm happy to respond. You can hit me through my website, sageinvestors.ca. Send me an email through my website. And you can also find me on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Sage Investors. And if you have, uh, you know, I'm on there all the time, tweeting in real time in terms of, uh, observations, sharing with you research and content that I'm seeing from other people who I think really know their stuff with investing. Um, you find me through there. I also do an email every Wednesday called In The Loop where I basically share with you some of my, update you with my new blog posts and videos and podcasts. It's a quick and easy way to find out what, what I'm looking at. 
And also I share with you stuff that I'm reading that I think is really cool and I think uh, can help you um, give you perspectives in terms of how you frame your investment decisions. Um, and also a nice little dashboard in terms of some economic variables that can play into how the stock market might evolve in the future. I hit that all in through my in the loop email. So if you're interested, you can go to my website, sageinvestors.ca, and there's a sign up, just drop your email and boom, you're on my you're on my list. And every Wednesday morning and afternoon you will get a you will get the email. So that's all I got for you today. Um, yeah, that's about it. I don't think I got anything else for you today. Hope that's uh, you find that of some value. Um, thanks again for listening in. If you want to listen to any of my previous podcasts, again, through the website, um, sageinvestors.ca, or all my episodes, previous episodes of Stock Talk are on iTunes. So you can download all the podcasts um, through there. So feel free to do that. Feel free to subscribe and leave some comments, leave some reviews on there. I'd be more than happy to hear you out, and, uh, and it's all good. So thanks again for listening in. Uh, this has been another episode of Stock Talk. My name is Amin Reina and from Sage Investors. And thank you again for listening in. And we'll catch you again another time. Take care. Bye-bye.